Today's scripture reading is from the book of Leviticus, chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and then shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats one lot for the Lord, and the other for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord, and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. This is the word of the Lord. I want to let you know we are celebrating communion this morning, the Lord's Supper, and so the message will be a little bit shorter than usual. As is always the case when we have communion, we like to take the opportunity to pray with you and for you. Uh, We we feel that way every Sunday. We never want you to leave a service here feeling like you, you needed to have someone pray with you or pray for you, but particularly when we celebrate communion, we build time into the end of the service. So there'll be folks at the the tables in the front and also the tables in the back who are prepared to pray for you. So after you take communion, if you choose to take communion, that is, um, we consider it an honor to pray for you. So just give you that heads up this morning before we get to that time. We're continuing our series today that we've called One Story. By one story, we mean that we're looking at the entirety of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, and looking at the one key idea uh, in Scripture. A lot of people view the Old and New Testaments as two very separate, very different, even contradictory collections of writings. But in fact, the Bible is a unified whole. All Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, fit together like the beautifully designed pieces of a wonderful puzzle revealing God's one-story plan for His people. Now, someone may ask, well, can't you be a Christian without reading the Old Testament? And surely you can, but I I like the... uh, the illustration that David Holcomb shared with me this week. He said it'd be kind of like coming into a movie when it's three quarters over. You would get to see the wonderful conclusion, but you would miss all that had gone before it. 
So the Old Testament is important. The Old Testament prepares the way for the New Testament. The law of God prepares the way for the gospel of God. Now, we're going to look at a book this morning that is um, one of the most readily dismissed by skeptics of all the books in the Bible. And I'm talking about the book of Leviticus. Uh, perhaps it's so readily dismissed because uh, there are a number of laws in Leviticus that don't make a lot of sense to us today. There are also uh, prohibitions of a variety of, of sexual practices that, that people uh, look down on. But I must admit, I have never really looked forward to reading the book of Leviticus. When I get to that point in my read through the Bible in a year plan, I'm uh, always kind of glad to finish the book of Leviticus, and that's the case with a couple of other Old Testament books. Nevertheless, it does play a very important role in God's one-story plan. Now, the word Leviticus uh, comes from the word Levite, or Levi, and it literally means things concerning the Levites. The Levites were descendants of Levi, and um, they were priests in temple worship. In fact, those directly ascend, uh, descended from Aaron, the brother of Moses, were those who offered sacrifices, and those who weren't directly descended of Aaron assisted in other ways in temple worship. So the entire book of Leviticus is about forms of worship, the offering of sacrifices by the various Levitical priests. Much of Leviticus focuses on these sacrifices. We're going to be looking today at Leviticus chapter 16, where we see that Old Testament sacrifices highlighted the holiness of God. Now, chapter 16 begins with some interesting words Amanda read just a moment ago that the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. Now, what's that all about? To answer that question, we'd have to go back to Leviticus chapter 10 where something unusual happens. At the beginning of Leviticus chapter 10, we read about the two sons of Aaron. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took a censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And that means to be regarded as holy, to be sanctified. And before all the people, I'll be glorified. Oh, Wow. That seems like a pretty severe judgment, doesn't it? Nadab and Abihu, they approach God. They apparently were approaching the very holy presence of God himself, but they were doing it in a way that God had not prescribed. They were doing it presumptuously, apparently. We don't get a lot of detail about it, but we see very clearly that it's a fearful, awesome thing to approach the very presence of the holy God, and it can't be done presumptuously. It's got to be done in the way that he prescribes. I, um, I had a conversation with someone yesterday. It wasn't about the book of Leviticus, but it was about this person's 
salvation. This is a person who is quite old and was talking about death and feels that they are close to death. It's not anybody in our church. And as I talked to this person, I, I became concerned because he, he could not seem to grasp the fact that Jesus Christ in his death on the cross and in his resurrection have provided for our salvation as a, as a gift, our forgiveness, our place in heaven. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I tried to explain to this person that our salvation is a, is a gift by the grace of God. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. And to my sorrow, and I found it troubling, he kept going back to his own religious deeds and saying things like, well, I, I, I think I'll go to heaven because I did this, and I did this, and I did this. And I said, no, don't you understand? The entirety of the Bible calls us to humble ourselves before God and recognize that Jesus is the way God has prescribed. We have to come to God the way he's prescribed. We're not going to be able to stand before God's throne and stand before the one who left heaven to give his life and died to provide our salvation and say, well, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this without regard for him. We've got to come to God in the way he prescribes. And Jesus has said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, back to Leviticus for a moment. We've got to come to God in the way he prescribes. In the Old Testament sacrifices, among other things, highlight the incredible holiness of God. We continue to read in this passage as Moses, as God is giving to Moses the, the prescription for how to approach his very holy presence. He shall put on the holy linen coat and have the linen undergarment on his body and shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. He's not to approach the holy presence of God like Nadab and Abihu did presumptuously. He's to come in the way God prescribes. This emphasis here, and the emphasis in much of the book of Leviticus, is on the holiness of God. In fact, I think if, if there's one key word in the book of Leviticus, I think it would be the word holy, because this word appears throughout. God says in Leviticus 11, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy as I am holy. To be holy means to be set apart, set apart from this world and its sin and its corruption to God. In verse chapter 19 of Leviticus, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And in Leviticus chapter 20, You shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. If you recall when we began this study in the book of Genesis, we saw God's desire for a people. He created us out of his own great love, the love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that's always existed. God chose to create, to pour out his love 
upon people made in his image who would receive his love and love him in return. But sin entered this world through Adam and Eve, and that sin began to corrupt the human race. And God's holiness and human sin do not mix. So God provided a way for his people to approach him. And it was critically important in these Old Testament times to approach God in the way that he prescribed. Old Testament sacrifices then provided a means, a means of atonement for the people. Atonement or atone is another word that you see often in the book of Leviticus. And here in chapter 16, God is instituting what would later be known as the Day of Atonement an annual sacrifice offered for the sins of the Israelites. God gives this guidance. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting was the place where the priest was to come to offer the sacrifices uh, before God to meet with God. So it was a tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. That is, he would slay the goat, the blood would be poured out as an atonement for sin. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it so that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Now, later in the chapter, in verse 20, we read these words about this goat that Aaron's placing his hands on the head of. When he has made an end of atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it, all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. He shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Now, what in the world is happening here? We think of a scapegoat as somebody blamed for somebody else's mistake, but it also carries this idea here of a substitute. It's amazing, by the way, how many English words have their origin in the Bible, and I suspect that's true with the, with the word scapegoat. Don't know that for sure. But can you just visualize this for a moment? Aaron has offered the one uh, goat uh, for the sins of uh, the people, for the Israelites, and now he's placing his hands on the head of this goat. And he starts confessing the sins, all the sins of the Israelites. His hands are on the head of the goat, and he's confessing their immorality. He's confessing all of the violence, the slander, the lying, the greed, the covetousness. He's confessing it on the head of this goat, and there's a man standing here ready when Aaron is done with the confession of sin to take the goat and he leads it out into a desolate place and, and lets it go free. What in the world is happening there? God is giving his people this picture of a substitute, of a substitute for their sin. 
carrying their sin away, taking it away from them. An animal rather than a human being. Now, some may ask this question. Why the, why the need for innocent animals to be killed in the first place? Because one of the, the, the bull and the first goat, they were, they were slain. And, and the blood of these animals was shed. Why would God require the killing of an innocent animal? And I think, in two words, the answer is his mercy. His mercy. God had said, <clears throat> and has said throughout his scripture, the soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. But in Leviticus 17, in verse 11, we read these words. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In other words, in his mercy, God, who is infinitely holy because of human sin, is allowing the judgment for our sin, for human sin, to be atoned for, not by the human's death, but by the death of an animal. Well, doesn't God love animals too? Of course he does. God created the creatures of this world, the birds, the fish of the sea. But a human being, is of far, far more value to God than an animal. The Bible makes it clear. Jesus, when he was teaching a sermon on the mount, said, look at the birds of the air. Your father feeds them. He takes care of them. And he says to the people that, are you not of more value than they? Human life is precious to God because a human being is made in the image and likeness of God. Human being is capable of communion, fellowship with God. Human being through faith in Jesus can actually receive the very spirit of the living God and be a temple for the Holy Spirit of God. Human life is precious. Now, <clears throat> God is allowing atonement to be made by the shedding of the blood of an animal. The word atonement, another word often used here, comes from a, a verb, kipare, to wipe clean um, some give it the meaning of a covering over of sin. The English word atonement dates to William Tyndale from the 16th century and uh, carries the idea of at one being reconciled with God. But this guidance given to uh, Moses, Aaron, in Leviticus chapter 16, instituted what became known as the Day of Atonement. And this was to be an annual uh, day of sacrifice. The last verse of this chapter, uh, chapter 16 of Leviticus reads, and this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. So we see these Old Testament sacrifices highlighting the holiness of God and providing a means of atonement for the people so they could safely live in the presence of a holy God. But they are pointing to something else. They're pointing to something far, far greater than themselves. Old Testament sacrifice is pointed to the one great final sacrifice, and that, of course, 
is the death of Jesus on the cross. The New Testament book of Hebrews gives, I think, the best explanation in the Bible of the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Because in the book of Hebrews, the shadows of Leviticus become substance. Hebrews reveals the substance of the shadows. For example, in Hebrews chapter 9, we read these words. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. In other words, when Jesus came as the great high priest, he entered not the earthly tent of meeting, where Aaron and the other priests were offering sacrifices. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of, a defiled, of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The chapter goes on to say in verse 26, uh, verse uh, 22 rather, Indeed, under the law, speaking of the Old Testament law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sins. We remember in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, even then, God made them skins for clothing. There was the shedding of blood of a sacrifice. Sin is costly before holy God. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Now, when, when Hebrews speaks of copies, it's talking about the Old Testament uh, forms, the shadows. They're called copies here. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, that is Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Since Jesus came and died on the cross, there is never again any need for the sacrifice of an animal. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are easily, eagerly waiting for him. Now, let's look back on that, and it might help to view it in the form of a chart. The shadows and the substance. The shadows are these Old Testament forms. The sacrifice. The substance revealed in the New Testament is Jesus. In the Old Testament, we had the earthly priest, we had the Levites, the people who offered the sacrifices. But in the New Testament, we're told we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. 
You know what the high priest does? He represents us before God. So the Son of God represents us before God the Father. The shadow of the Old Testament was called the tent of meeting. It was an earthly tent. It was built with human hands. Jesus has entered into heaven on our behalf now, for us, before the throne of God himself. And the writer of Hebrews refers to this as the more perfect tent. The Old Testament priests came with the blood of goats and calves to atone for the sins of the Israelites. Jesus came shedding his own blood. The Old Testament shadow, the sacrifices of the priests in the tent of meeting, provided for the purification of the flesh, the sins of the people, so that God might dwell among them despite his holiness and their sin, provided a, a wiping away, a temporary cleansing. Jesus' blood does more, provides for the purification of the soul, of the conscience. Jesus pays for all of our sin and credits us with his own righteousness, his own right standing with the Father. The Old Testament shadows were repeated sacrifices. Annually, the Day of Atonement was held. Jesus' sacrifice is once for all time for all people who would come through him. The Old Testament shadow was a temporary atonement, and in the words of the book of Hebrews, what Jesus has done is an eternal redemption. What he has done is to secure our eternal redemption. And if you are in Christ, your redemption is secure. The Old Testament sacrifices pointed ahead. They pointed to something, or rather to someone, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world, the great substitute, the great high priest to whom all the other priests pointed, the great sacrifice to which all the other sacrifices pointed, Jesus. So central to this was his coming and fulfilling of the Old Testament types and shadows that Jesus has now given away for us to reflect upon what he's done, a visible, tangible way, and we call it the Lord's Supper or communion. You may have heard it known as the Eucharist in, in your past, uh, a past church tradition. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning. And I'll say to you that um, all are welcome to take the Lord's Supper. You don't have to be a member of our church. It may be your first day here. Um, I do want to say this, though. In, in, in light of the teaching of the Apostle Paul, we must consider that it's a significant and serious thing to take the Lord's Supper. We need to understand what it means, and we need to have personally received what Jesus has done for us. Look at the words on the screen from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 just for a moment. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This holy thing, communion, reflects on what Jesus has done, but it reminds us to look ahead to his second coming, to the great wedding supper of the Lamb spoken of in the book of Revelation. And then we're called to examine ourselves. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine ourselves first to be sure that our faith is in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. And then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I'd like to take a moment now to pray and uh, then take a moment of silence because communion is also a time to search our hearts. If there's a person we need to forgive, if there's a sin we need to confess before God, but, but most importantly, to be sure that we've indeed placed our trust in Jesus, that he is our Lord, that we are his children. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we ask that your spirit work among us now Guide us to partake of communion in the way that is right in your eyes. And I pray for your people to receive all the benefits of this holy thing we call the Lord's Supper. That you bring each person here renewal of faith, encouragement by the Holy Spirit, healing for body and soul in the name of Jesus. Amen.